0: Father, we thank you for the truth of the songs that we've sung, even that last one, that we need no other argument, we need no other plea, that you died, Christ, for your people, and it is your death, it is your life, it is your resurrection, on which we stand, on which we hope, it is your word, on also that we stand in hope, Receiving everything that you have revealed to us as truth. And anticipating that great day when you will return for your people. And those who are yours will be revealed. And as we'll consider this morning, those who are not yours will also be revealed. I do pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see spiritually. And to learn this morning from the life of Judas. Help us to be instructed by his failure to be warned, and to be encouraged to turn to you in true faith and repentance, and to follow you all the days of our life. I pray this in your matchless name, Jesus, amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, Matthew twenty-six fourteen through 16. We ended here last time a couple of weeks ago, as it were, it may have been three weeks ago, one with a... Lights went out of the electricity one week, and then Ted uh, was up last week. But we're going to pick this up where we left off. And, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of time necessarily in this text, but really going to use it as a launching point to consider the life of Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Now, we're going to encounter Judas at several other points throughout these final days of the Lord Jesus. We encounter him here in his betrayal... We'll encounter him at the supper. We'll encounter him again at the garden where he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And then we'll encounter him once more after Peter's denials. And then he goes and returns the silver to the leaders, the cedar silver now he's here asking for. So we're going to be confronted with different aspects of Judas' life throughout this account, But I want to stop this morning and back up just a little bit and take a broader view of the life of Judas. And to consider a couple of particular and specific aspects about his life that serve to us as a model and a warning that religious unbelief is very possible. Religious unbelief is very possible. In fact, Judas stands for us as an example of one who can be so very near to Christ and yet remain unconverted... And ultimately perish. Now, you may have wondered at certain points why God ever ordained the life of Judas Iscariot. It was ordained, it was known before the foundation of the world. Indeed, God chose it to be exactly the way that it was. God is not responsible for Judas's sin, but he did ordain it. And there's at least two reasons that I could gather for why God ordained the life of Judas. One is to intensify the suffering of Christ. And we've mentioned that and we'll actually consider that point more fully later on. But secondly, I believe a reason that Judas is in Scripture and the way that it happened, the way that it did, was God is providing for us an example of the depth of hypocrisy and unbelief that the human heart is capable of. Despite having every religious and spiritual privilege given to them. So again, he reminds us that it's very possible to be near to the Lord and yet never know him. To live under the shadow of the cross without ever knowing Christ's saving and transforming power. To have a form of godliness for son and yet denying its power. To live with every gospel opportunity, warning and plea and yet remain a stranger to grace. So the purpose of the message this morning broadly is this to help you discern whether you have the reality or the absence of spiritual life and to do so through the life of Judas Iscariot. So read with me verses 14 through 16 of Matthew 26 as I said we're going to use this just as a launching point and then we'll look at Judas a bit more closely. Matthew 26:14 Then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said what are you willing to give me to betray him to you and they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him and from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus and there is the first time that we're introduced to the treachery of Judas this this deed of one of the 12 disciples one of those chosen by Christ himself to be near him. Now regarding the man Judas Iscariot, there's really very little known about him. All that can be said for certain is that his father's name was Simon. And the name Iscariot identifies the town where he was from, Kerioth hezron a town south of Judah. And it makes him the only Judean of the group and it makes him the only non-Galilean of all of the other disciples. Pretty much everything else about the life of Judas in terms of the history of Judas is shrouded in ministry. He forever comes down to us known only as this, Judas the traitor. Judas the traitor. As you read through the Gospels, that is always and consistently his identification. So to examine the life of Judas then, I want to take it in two, two different angles, two different ways to approach this. And the first is this. To show how near a person can be to Christ and have external marks of faith and yet remain unconverted. That will be the first part. The second is this. To show what are the true marks of regeneration that are lacking in one who is in the condition of Judas. Let's look first at this. Then it is possible to have many spiritual privileges and yet lack spiritual life. Consider this, that you can be very near to Christ and the truth and yet... Lack spiritual life. You can grow up in a Christian family. You can have regular exposure to Christian teaching. To Christian testimonies. To lives that demonstrate the reality of spiritual life. You can have sound doctrine. And one can even participate in Christian activities and fellowship. And yet again remain a stranger to grace. Let's consider Judas on this point. He was chosen by Jesus himself to enjoy a unique exposure to the truth and to his person. A unique exposure to the life of Jesus. Consider some of the privileges that he had. Of all the men in Galilee and Judea, Judas was chosen to be one of the twelve to be nearest to Christ. Of all the men in the history of the world, by the providence of God... Judas was one who was born at the right time in the right place among the right people to have, listen, a privilege that only 12 people in the history of the world would ever have. And that is to walk near with the incarnate Son of God, the Messiah, Christ. He walked with Jesus. He talked with him. He listened to his teaching. He observed his miracles He witnessed the amazement of the reactions of the crowds who heard him teach and watched these miracles. He heard the divine pleas to repentance. He saw the lives of others who were transformed. He saw the change in the life of Zacchaeus, the change in the life of Mary Magdalene. He saw the change in the life of Matthew himself and whose gospel we're reading He had the mysteries of the kingdom of God explained to him. He was one of those brought near in personal counsel with with Christ himself to have his teaching explained. Judas saw the dead raised. He saw the sea calmed. He saw crowds fed from a few loaves and fish. He saw demons cast out with a word. He saw the rich young ruler turn away and forfeit his soul because of his wealth. He saw sin pronounced forgiven. He saw the hatred and the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders and heard Jesus' excoriating rebuke of them. He saw the demands of discipleship explained and lived out among others. He was then a first-hand witness to the life of the Son of God himself. In fact, he witnessed the only perfect and sinless life ever to walk the face of the earth. Him who was the embodiment of truth, the embodiment of God's divine love, of holiness, of wisdom. And yet he remained unconverted. Unconverted. Now there is a sense in which no one today can have that same kind of nearness to Judas. Nobody in this room is going to have that experience repeated. It cannot be. It happens only once in the history of God's universe. But you can be routinely exposed to Christ in Scripture... You can be routinely exposed to Christian truth, to examples of faith, to those who have genuine spiritual life that you interact with and intermingle with, to hear the testimonies of God's transforming work. In other words, to experience great privileges of the gospel and remain unconverted. I think the first example that came to my mind in this is Christian children who grow up in Homes Or homes or children who grow up in Christian homes. Who have a lifetime from the very earliest years of seeing these things lived out before them. Only to in the end walk away from the faith. To walk away from that that they had so many privileges to embrace Christ himself. And yet turn their back on it. There's many in here who have children in that condition There's children in here who that might very well be true of the future. And what a waste it is. But it's not just children. It's all who hear the word of God regularly preached, who witness the reality of spiritual life, though imperfectly lived out before them, and yet turn away. Now, there's many warnings in Scripture. Let me remind you of one in Hebrews chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But Hebrews chapter 3. This is the very thing that the writer of Hebrews is addressing to those who had these great privileges of the gospel. They had the gospel, the word of God affirmed to them. Not only by those who preached it, but then even through miraculous signs and wonders. They had the testimony of God's authenticating his word and his messengers. And here are a group of Christians who, are, who had given some acquiescence to that. They had in some way believed And yet, as the cost of following Christ was getting higher, uh, they were in danger some of falling away. Indeed, the writer of Hebrews here acknowledges that there was a whole nation that was in that same condition, the nation of Israel. And he says here in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, quoting from the Old Testament, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me, as in the day of Trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me. And here's the key. And saw my works for 40 years. And that's really the kicker. Saw his works for 40 years. Saw the plagues. Saw the deliverance. Saw the Red Sea being parted. Saw the manna being provided. Saw the water come out of the rock. Saw God defeat armies before the nation of Israel. Saw him lead them through a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And yet, he says in verse 10, They always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. And so I swore in my wrath that they would not enter my rest. He says in chapter 4, Therefore let us fear While a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it, for indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So they heard, they witnessed many great works of God, but it was not united by faith. And so the first thing to learn from Judas's life is this, that it's very possible to be very near to Christ, to have very many privileges given to you in terms of the gospel and spiritual opportunity, and yet remain unconverted. A second point on this, you can have great ministry responsibility and remain unconverted. Now often I've heard, maybe you've heard this, particularly in certain regions of the country, You can ask somebody their testimony or about their spiritual life and almost immediately you get a list of all of the things that they're doing. All of the responsibilities they may have in the church, all of the activities that they're participating within the church. In other words, their spiritual life is defined entirely by what they say in terms of what they do, in terms of what they're doing, privileges of service and so forth. But I would suggest to you that these things really don't say much about the condition of your spiritual life or your standing with God. In fact, they may say absolutely nothing about that. These things say nothing about motive. They say nothing about an understanding of grace. They say nothing about a love for Christ. All of those things can be done with wrong, with a wrong heart. As a matter of fact, that's why on the front of your bulletin is a list, two list. I hope you'll consider and maybe even use it with others, a list of those things that can be true of a person's life, that demonstrate reality of faith, and those things that can be true while the heart is not right with God. So look at Judas. He was given the ministry of the gospel, the charge to announce the good news of the kingdom to Israel. Consider this. Judas was called out and, in fact, participated in a ministry of the gospel. A ministry of the gospel. It says in verse 1 of chapter 10 in Matthew that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Judas was among that group. Verse five, he says, then the twelve, these twelve Jesus sent out after instructing and he gave them instructings, don't go in the way of the Gentiles and so forth, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, preach and go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons, freely you received, freely give. Judas had that message. He was among them. He was performing these great works. He was calling out to Israel to believe in the Christ, the Christ that he was identified with very closely. The point is simple. A right message doesn't, doesn't guarantee a right heart. A right message doesn't guarantee a right heart with God. A right message, a right doctrine does not guarantee that you believe it. That you have yielded your life to it. that is the God whom it proclaims is precious to you. Ministry and accurate doctrine alone is not proof of spiritual reality or love for God. It simply isn't. Now that's been abundantly clear as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew. As it is throughout Scripture. Repeatedly, even as we saw it's in John 9 this morning that... Pastor Reardon read that here were the leaders of Israel, the ones who were supposedly the spiritual eyes of the nation, bringing truth to them, and yet they were absolutely blind. Matter of fact, Jesus said this, and Judas would have heard him say this, would have been right there with him, when he said to, to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he says, you're blind You clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. He would have heard them, call them whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness, who appear outwardly righteous, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He would have heard that. And it wasn't just the Pharisees, was it? not just those pharisees those evil leaders of the jews paul himself had to tell the the elders in acts chapter 20 that when he departs that when he departs some even from in verse 30 from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them that's that's within the church That's within those who are professing Christ. Those are the leaders. These aren't just even the average Christian. These are the ones who were uniquely called out by God for service. Or given service in his church. So notice Judas had a lot of ministry responsibility. Note secondly here that he had financial responsibility. Financial responsibility. And that's saying quite a bit. I mean if there's one area where people fall where you have to be careful, it's where? Money, right? Money. If there's anybody that somebody has to display the character of integrity, it's dealing with money. It's being entrusted with people's money. And that Judas was that guy. He was that guy. John 12, 6 said he was given, he was given the money box. He had the money box. That's where they kept all of the donations that were given to the ministry. He had charge over that. Nobody questioned him. Nobody was looking over his shoulder. They completely trusted him with these things. This money box was just how they they did their work of ministry. It's how they cared for the poor. It's how they met their ministry needs. It's how they bought the things that they needed. And they said, hey, Judas, you take care of this. We trust you. And you just take care of all the money. We're just going to give it to you. You are a man who can be trusted. And there's no way, of course, to know how much was in the box. Luke 8 tells us that some women the means used to support the ministry from their private fund, funds. They were likely very wealthy and there were others, no doubt, who gave to the ministry. So Jesus, uh, G, uh, Judas was essentially then the, treasure of the treasurer of the disciples. The treasurer of the disciples. And again, nobody questioned him. Nobody checked on him. He had a strong impression that he gave of faithfulness and integrity. But of course, it was misplaced. And you can add to his responsibility, uh, the other side of that, that he had a great respectability. A great respectability. Again, nobody in the group thought of him as a traitor. Even with the words of Jesus hanging in the air about somebody who's going to betray him in verse 21, even after he took the bread, the disciples are looking at themselves, the other eleven, and not at Judas. Judas was the last person on their mind. It says the disciples in verse 22 of John 13 began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking about. Who could it be? There's no hint that any of them even said, I bet it's that Judas guy. I bet it's him. I've always been a little, little concerned about him. Nobody said that. Nobody. Even when he left, after receiving the morsel from Christ, even after he left, it says in verse 29, some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that he was, Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. Even then, nobody is saying, it might be Judas. He was, by all accounts, externally thought to be a man of integrity trustworthy, truthful, honest, even to the very end. And this is even more striking when you consider that he wasn't some guy on the fringes out there. He wasn't some guy loosely associated with the group, but he was right there in the middle of them. He moved among them. He served. He probably prayed. He traveled as one of them for over nearly three years. He wasn't on the fence He was involved in ministry. He had conversations. He was fully involved in the life of the disciples. Externally, here's the key with Judas, is he was indistinguishable from the others. Except the internal reality of his heart was wrong. Note thirdly, here that you can also have an experience of power in ministry. We already hinted at this. You can be near to Christ... You can have ministry responsibility, and you can even have a certain kind of power or success in ministry. We read it earlier in Matthew chapter 10.1. He was sent out. He was sent out with the others, and he was given a certain amount of power, of spiritual power. In that case, a unique circumstance, no doubt, but he was nonetheless endowed with a certain power, amount of power to fulfill that ministry. You could say that Judas tasted the power of the coming kingdom of God. And again, there was no distinction of his ministry at that time and that of the other apostles. He had no more or less power by any indication of the text than Peter, than James, than John, the inner circle, or any of the others. He had it all. And he had the same responsibility. And this is an important point to recognize and this is a particularly important in this way. And, and if we look broadly kind of at the church, at those things that for a whole large segment of the church, and some of you come out of this kind of movement or this kind of theology, that says the, the assurance of salvation is what? Speaking in tongues. Doing miraculous things. That's the assurance of salvation. That's how you know. Look, I don't mean to... And I don't intend to in this moment say whether any particular incidents some are obvious, are legitimate or not. I think that's really beside the point here. The point is this, that whatever dramatic experience or power in ministry or fruit from ministry a person may have, that does not by itself affirm salvation and that one stands in grace. It doesn't do that. You remember, as well as I do, Jesus' warning... About not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And some will say, didn't we prophecy in your name? In your name, cast out demons in your name before many miracles. And Jesus can say, Judas did that. Judas did that. That doesn't prove anything. That doesn't prove anything. In Hebrews 6, there's another warning that the writer gives. He says, look, you've had many great experiences. He's writing to them. He says, you've once been enlightened. You've understood truth. You've had, it, you've had it preached to you. You've had it explained to you. And you've had some level of where you accepted it. You've tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. The things that the Holy Spirit was doing among them in works of power and creating faith. And he says, you've, you've, you've experienced that. You've seen it. You've tasted of it at some measure. You've tasted the good word of God, powers of the age to come. And then some will fall away. And he says, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again to themselves the Son of God who put him and put him to Open shame. Open shame. Wonderful experiences of the gospel and yet unconverted. Lastly, under this, this idea of how close you can be and be unconverted, this last point. You can even have a degree of perseverance and remain unconverted. A degree of perseverance and remain unconverted. Let me mention this briefly. We've looked at these things before. In John chapter 6, you'll remember Jesus had some hard teaching that he gave to the disciples. Some, he said some hard things. Some things that were hard for them to understand. And it says in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Guess who stayed? Judas. Judas stayed. He didn't walk away. Large groups of them walked away, but not Judas. Judas, he was there. Jesus said to the twelve, the twelve disciples, you do not want to go away also, do you? Judas heard that, and Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We, including Judas, in his, Peter's mind, have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus says that I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. And Now this He meant Judas, the son Simon the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas knew that, but or Jesus knew that, but on the outside, nobody else knew that. And guess what? Judas stayed. They left. Judas stayed he would stayed he went through many hardships of ministry he would have known what it was like to be to go hungry to travel long distances to maintain a busy schedule he was no stranger to sacrifice for the sake of the ministry of jesus that he was involved with he was no stranger to that but he was unconverted so in summary you can have nearness to the truth spiritual responsibility respectability even a measure of spiritual success and the sense of some kind of ministry that God's given or some kind of power, a degree of perseverance, and yet remain unconverted. None of those things I just listed or that we see in the life of Judas are in and of themselves grounds for assurance of salvation. None of them. None of them. So you might ask yourself, what is missing? I mean, that is a pretty impressive list, isn't it? That is a pretty impressive list. And you might say, how in the world can one discern whether or not they are a believer or a future apostate? What in the world did Judas not have that a believer would have? I mean, come on. That's a pretty impressive list. Most of those we would look at maybe in our own lives or in others and just naturally assume as did the other 11 disciples. So what is it that he did not have? Here's the second half. He did not have this. And this is what no religious unbeliever has, any unbeliever. He did not have the fruit of a regenerate heart. So what is that fruit? What is that fruit? In other words, the reality of salvation is not a matter of what you do, but who you are. The reality and the assurance of salvation is on what you love How you respond to the word of God, to Christ. We touched on that just briefly. I just saw the last part of it in Sunday school. You can can have a lot of this stuff, but it's what do you love? Who are you? How do you respond to God's word? Is there a fear of God in your heart? Do you have a hatred of sin? That's what a believer has. So the first point is this. A religious unbeliever is not at war with the sin in their heart and in their mind. A religious unbeliever is not at war with sin in their heart and in their mind. Sin is maybe generally described, could be described as this pervading principle in man. Our attitudes, our our beliefs, our deeds, our actions that are deeply rooted in our nature that is alienated from God. The flesh as scripture describes it that part that is unsubmissive to God, that wants to live independently of God's holiness, of His commands. That's, that's the idea of sin. And the most basic and fundamental reality of a regenerate heart is that a believer hates that sin within them. It's there. It's always there. It's more strong than they want it to be. But they hate it. it it's, it's, it's at contrast with who they really are. They don't like it. They're fighting it. It doesn't mean if somebody is regenerate that you don't have sin. All of those 11 disciples had sin and they pathetically displayed it as we'll see throughout. But it did not control them. They fought it. They strove against it. And that's what a believer does, but not Judas. He did not hate and fight sin in his heart. Again, I, in John chapter 12, remind you of these briefly. John chapter 12, the part of that verse says this. Now he said this, Judas, after he, he made a, a comment about how that perfume that Mary, Mary poured out on Jesus is an act of worship. We've considered that. He says, why wasn't this soul given to the poor? And John tells us in verse 6, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a what? A thief, right? He was a thief. And he had the money box. And he used to pilfer what was put in it. That was Judas. He took from it. That was his true motivation was this. It was greed. That was his motivation. When you boiled him down to who he was, he was greedy. He was greedy. He wanted money. This is a constant warning. Constant warning of scripture. First Timothy 6. Verse 9 But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is at the root of all sorts of evil. Some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That is Judas. That is so many who have followed in his steps. He had the money box, but he was in the habit of regularly helping himself to what he wanted. So understand the picture. He was serving. He was preaching. He was following. He was listening. He was watching Christ. And the whole time, he was feeding his sin. He was feeding his sin. He was taking from the money box. He was giving in to his greed. And this is, in fact, the motive that's laid out before us in chapter 26 of Matthew. What did he say? He went to them and he says what? What are you willing to give me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? What are you willing to give me? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And here's the point. He did not inwardly fear God. He had no love for Christ. He wasn't fighting for holiness in his heart. And this is religious unbelief. It was all external, but there was nothing within him that freed him from that role of mastery of sin in his heart. Romans 6.16 says this, Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in Righteousness. So for Judas, he continually presented himself inwardly to his sin. He was a slave of that sin. He did not fight it. There was no pull of righteousness within his heart. And that's what religious unbelief looks like. It's fine with sin as long as two conditions generally are met. One, nobody else knows about it. As long as nobody else knows about it, I'm cool. No conviction, no shame, no sorrow. I got away with it. I'm fine. That's the first condition. And the other condition is this, that there's no immediate consequence. There's no immediate consequence. There's no immediate judgment. There's no immediate shame. And so as long as those two conditions aren't met, the heart of unbelief is totally fine with their sin. Got away with that one. That was a close call. There's no hating it because there's no fear of God within that heart. Jesus told this to the Pharisees, right? Imagine this. Imagine if among any of these religious leaders, and put yourself in this picture, as I would in my own heart, and say, you know, if, if anybody could see that, that thought, that in the, in the example we'll use, that lustful thought, that sexually immoral thought, or some other kind of thought, it could be anger, it could be anything, here it's sexual immorality. If anybody could see that, what would happen? It would be shame, wouldn't it? Shame. Embarrassment, But you see, if somebody is a religious hypocrite, and they're really an unbeliever, then they don't feel that. As a matter of fact, Jesus then had to tell these leaders... You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say everyone who looks on a woman with lust for has committed adultery in her heart. They were fine as long as they didn't externally do it, as they had twisted all that around anyway... But inside, they lusted like crazy. They were having immoral relationships with all kinds of women. But they were fine with that because they didn't outwardly show it. There were no immediate consequences. And that's how it works. So if you have the habit of hypocrisy, living contrary to the reality of your heart, to lie and practice it, sin, in your heart or trying to cover over it, there is a very real danger that Judas is a living example of, and that is this, that there is a possibility of becoming seared in your conscience. Seared in your conscience. Listen to this and how Paul describes it in 1 Timothy 4.2. He says, speaking of false teachers, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So what is the effect of hypocrisy? It damages and destroys and it kills the conscience. That part in us that is to be convicted, ashamed by our sin, hypocrisy kills that. It silences it. it. It shuts the voice off. It makes it go away until it could be described as being seared as with a branding iron. There's a point where if you continually deny that convicting reality of sin in the heart, that you'll no longer feel that conviction. It'll go away, sure. Sure. Some it will go away. You don't, and you, you don't have to feel that. You don't have to feel ashamed over sin inwardly or bad. You can kind of silence that enough and live a duplicitous life. But here's the warning where there's no conviction, there's also no what. There's no repentance. And if there's no repentance, there's no what? There's no life, there's no salvation. And this is the effect that was on Judas's heart. It's on every heart that makes the choice to ignore the, any rousing of conscience and to live a life that you know is not true. And, and particularly in the realm of religious hypocrisy, it's particularly seductive because it has so much on the outside that looks right. So much that's commendable. So much that's good. Right? The word, Faithfulness to the word of God and ministry and so forth. But... It can be a covering for what's really going on on the inside. Hebrews 3.13 describes it this way, that those can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But let me just assure you of this. Well-known statement, you've heard it. Time and truth go hand in hand. Time and truth go hand in hand. The heart is eventually going to be displayed for what it is. You just give it enough time and the truth will be made known. It will be revealed. Although for some, they can make it all the way to the judgment, as those in Matthew 7. But it will be revealed eventually. But here's the key. A believer is always dealing with sin internally. A regenerate heart says this, and, and lives with this as uh, an impression on the soul, that God desires truth in the innermost being. God desires truth in the innermost. It means as much as you can as a fallen sinner, if a person is regenerate, you seek to be truthful in your innermost being before God. You seek to be truthful. You don't allow any hypocrisy in your heart. As soon as you see sin, you deal with it. As soon as it is pointed out, you deal with it. That's what a believer does. A believer doesn't desire merely the appearance of righteousness, but the reality of it. A believer can receive praise on the outside and be ashamed on the inside in confession before God because they know their motives. They know their motives. A believer desires to be righteous in your thoughts, in your motives, in your attitude. If you are a believer and regenerate, you want your inner life to match up with what is pleasing to Christ. You want those two things to be in harmony. And when it isn't, you're weighted down. Like David, with the fever heat of summer, his strength was taken away. It bothers you. There's no joy. There's no happiness in Christ. There's no fellowship with him. There's no usefulness with him. Prayers seem cold and distant until that sin is dealt with. And a believer feels that and confesses their sin and gets ashamed before God, seeks cleansing, fights to put that sin to death. And as Hebrews 10.22 says, to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's what a believer wants, is a clear conscience. A clear conscience. So again, it's not the presence of sin that marks a believer or an unbeliever. It's the failure to hate that sin and resist it internally. That's the dividing mark. No hatred of sin, no inwardly feeling and enjoying the lust of sin, no conflict. His heart was never converted. He was the stony soil. Let's look thirdly here. Secondly, so then a regenerate heart battles sin... Judas didn't do that. Secondly, a religious unbeliever does not have God's word abiding in him. These will be a little quicker. Judas, like the other 11 disciples, again heard the same words of Christ and gave the same external commitment. He was among the 12. He supposedly agreed with Peter's statement of faith, but whatever was going on in his heart, it was clear that God's words were not Abiding in him. Jesus alluded to this in John 15. When he says that you can be in him. Have some kind of external attachment. And yet bear no fruit. Bear no fruit. Not truly respond inwardly to Christ's words by faith. Don't rely on them. Uh, Somebody brought out in Sunday school this morning. There's no dependence upon God of the, in the unbeliever. A believer has a dependence, hears those words, depends on God, depends on those promises, rests in them, finds strength and courage in them. That's what it means to have His word abiding. But for a religious unbeliever, they're merely words. Sermon is just a part of the service that you have to get through. Bible reading is just a part of what you do because you're keeping the external, the external uh, image going. But those words, if they're not changing you inside at some level, you're not bearing fruit in the life, then Jesus says you're thrown away as a branch and cast into the fire. So the question is this, not how much exposure you have to the word, not how much you know about the word, not how much outward conformity you have to scripture, but this, are you seeking to be confirmed or conformed to God's word internally? Is that the goal of your life? Listen to one old writer in a book entitled The Gospel According to Strange Evangelist says this and actually he's speaking to Judas in this part he says it is a deadly thing to hear God's word without obeying it each failure to do his will hardens our hearts step by step we draw deeper into the shadow of separation from his love until possibly without even knowing the moment of decision we reject him and are lost forever. reject him and are lost forever We don't have time to turn there, but I'd encourage you to mark down Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 30 through 33. And basically what he's talking about there is these people, they come, they love to come and listen to the prophet, but you know what? They don't practice it. They go away and they say, oh, isn't that a beautiful song we just heard? Isn't that a lovely thing we just heard? But it doesn't match up with obedience in their heart. And that is the nation on whom judgment was to come. Thirdly here, I think lastly under this point. A religious unbeliever ignores or minimizes the warnings of Scripture and fails to practice self-examination. Fails to practice self-examination. Doesn't deal with sin, doesn't have God's Word abiding in them, and fails to practice self-examination. God in Scripture has given us many calls to examine ourselves, directly, test yourselves to see whether you be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13:5, indirectly, through teaching generally and by examples such as Judas for us. True assurance, beloved, is a precious gift grounded in the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit in us. And as precious as true assurance is, here is the warning, though, for this morning: False assurance is also a possibility. False assurance is also a possibility. Think about this. As you look at the life of Judas. Think of all of the reasons he would have had to find confidence in his salvation. Again, think of all those external things. Put in ministry, accepted by others, given some spiritual power, near to the Lord. And sometimes people can have a a tinge of conscience, can even have some kind of conviction. And what do they do to go assurance? They start affirming themselves of all the things that they do. All the things that they do. And they're not looking at the reality of their response to God's word and to sin. They're just, what can I do to find some confidence? And this is, this is how it would have been with Judas. But he was far from the Lord. So feeling confident you are saved is not the final test or grounds of salvation. Beloved, do you not know, I do, people who are absolutely assured of their salvation and ready to meet death courageously while their lives don't bear any real confident fruit of salvation? But they've worked out some kind of idea in their mind of how they're secure with God without looking exactly at what God's word says about assurance. So feeling confident you're saved is not the test of grounds. Again, what is it? Love for Christ, faith in him, an actual desire to be, walk in righteousness. And Jesus gives many, and God's word gives many calls to self-examination. And that was certainly true of the life of Judas. He was given many opportunities to reflect on his own condition. He heard the warnings again about hypocrisy to the crowds. He saw the rich young ruler walk away. He heard the rebuke of the leader's hypocrisy. He heard the teaching in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 about those who are going to come up short at the end. Right? Who didn't have oil in their lamps and so forth. But in addition to that, Jesus gave many direct warnings meant for Judas himself. And he ignored them. We looked at this already. John 6. He said, one of you is a devil. That was Jesus' comment. Jesus Judas would have heard that. He would have heard that. Now, when a believer hears those warnings, and knowing the sin that's in their heart, the believer's response, a regenerate heart, is to pray with David in Psalm 139 and say, Search me, O God. Search my heart. See if there be any hurtful way in me. God, I want to know. I don't want to be in that number. But a religious unbeliever doesn't. It's like water off a duck's back. They hear it and they move along. They just move along. Probably the most dramatic example of this in the life of Judas is John chapter 13. So there they are. You know this is in the upper room. Jesus is with his disciples. You're familiar with this. He knows that he's going back to be with the Father. Satan had already put it into his, Judas's heart to betray Christ. Jesus, in this great act of humility, sheds his outer garments, girds himself with a towel, goes around and washes the feet of the disciples. Get this, including Judas. Incredible display of his graciousness, his kindness. Even there, uh, really in a sense pleading to Judas, even there to say, Judas, don't do this. Don't do this. Judas, though he knew that was God's plan, Equally incredible was that Judas let him wash his feet. That's probably as as amazing as much as anything else. But throughout this scene, Jesus is giving him many warnings. He says in verse 10, 10, not all of you are clean. It's as if he's saying, Judas, you're not clean. You don't really have a part in this ministry. In verse 18, he said with all of the disciples there, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. In verse 21, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. It's like he's saying to Judas, listen, I'm warning you, I'm warning you. And in response to an interchange between Peter and John, Jesus says, it is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel. He took it and gave it to who? Judas. And he said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said, you have said it yourself. Picture the scene. His heart is so seared at this point. His conscience is so seared before God that he looks him in the eyes of the Son of God himself with a straight face in close physical proximity and he lies to his face. I mean, that's, that's up there with Satan challenging God and Job, lying to his face, knowing he was intending to put him to death or have him put to death. He just kept going. The warnings kept coming, but he would not hear them. And this is how it is for a religious unbeliever. You may hear warnings, understand them to some degree, but they simply don't cause you to question, to examine yourself, even though you know sin is in your life. They don't consider themselves in any danger. No danger. J.C. Ryle says this, He says, men are sadly apt to forget that it does not require great open sins to be sinned in order to ruin a soul forever. They have only to go on hearing without believing, listening without repenting, going to church without going to Christ, and by and by they will find themselves in hell. What are we doing with the gospel? He says later, are we really receiving the love of the truth? Is Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith? If not, we are in fearful danger. For we are far more guilty than the men of Sodom who never heard the gospel at all. We may awake to find that in spite of our regularity and morality and correctness, we have lost our souls for all eternity. He ends with this. It will not save us to have lived in the full sunshine of Christian privileges and to have heard the gospel faithfully preached each week. There must be experimental acquaintance with Christ. There must be personal reception of his truth. There must be vital union with him. We must become his servants and disciples. Without this, the preaching of the gospel only adds to our responsibility. It only increases our guilt. And will at length sink us more deeply into hell. What was the result of this unexamined life? What is the result of it? Well, in the end for Judas, it was he betrayed The son of God. He betrayed him. He gave him over. He lifted up his heel against him. Look at Matthew 26. We'll come to this in weeks ahead. But while he was still speaking. Judas one of the twelve. Came up accompanied by a large crowd. With swords and clubs. From the chief priests and elders. Him who walked with him. Talked with him. Followed him. Now in verse 48. He who was betraying him. Gave them a sign saying. Whomever I kiss. He is the one, sees him. Immediately, Judas goes up to Jesus. He goes to him. And he says, Hail, Rabbi! And he draws him near and he kisses him. He kisses him. Now think about this. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need to do that. His heart was so hardened. His conscience was so seared. He had lived this life of hypocrisy for so long that when he finally came to the deed... To that which he would betray him he did it without the least scream from his conscience he did it with a kiss with a kiss and the reality is that when you continue down the path of deliberate sin ignoring conscience ignoring warnings deceiving your own heart it grows increasingly increasingly easier to do and it becomes harder and harder and harder to hear the truth As Hebrews 6 says again, it becomes impossible to renew them to repentance. It becomes impossible to renew them to repentance. Now here's the last word. This isn't a last point. This is just the last word on this. The worst tragedy in the life of Judas, and if anybody who's in that condition, anybody who's in that condition is this. Repentance and salvation was always available. Peter denied Christ. He sinned terribly. We're going to look at this later. Judas betrayed him. Do you know if Judas would have stopped right then and later been broken and said, I can't believe what I did. Christ, will you forgive me? God would have forgiven him. He would have wiped him clean. He would have washed him new. He would have given him heaven and every privilege. That was always available. Always available. He was never outside God's willingness to forgive No sinner, no matter what has been done, no matter how much sin has been committed, no matter how much truth has been rejected, every sinner is always offered forgiveness with repentance of sin. Paul says this, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. For this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Basically saying this, Look, if God's going to save me, he'll save anybody. I persecuted the church of God. I killed Christians. I drugged them out of their homes. I, I took them away. I separated families. I was cruel. I, I hated everything about the name of Christ. And God's mercy was not beyond me. And beloved, it's not beyond anybody, any sinner, every sinner who comes to Christ at any point, repentantly, in sincere faith, can be washed clean and made new and a child of God. So he could have heeded the warnings given to him, but he did not. Though that was offered and available to him even to the last moment. Even at the kiss, Jesus said, Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas, do you really want to do this? Do you really know what you're doing? Even then, trying to bring conviction on his heart. Of course, Judas didn't have repentance. He drowned in self-pity and depression, but he never looked up to the God he betrayed for forgiveness though God was willing. So I would simply say this, don't let that happen to any of you. It would be foolish of me to presume that there's nobody in here at all who doesn't fit that picture. Right? Somebody, somebody does. If you don't, then the response to this is to praise God that He's done a work and pursue holiness, love Christ with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But if that does match you at some point, Somewhere, and you know, hey, that's me, the warning is to turn to Christ. It Turn to Christ, because there is a point, and we don't know where this is, God knows where this point is, but where he gives the sinner over, and it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And what a shame, what an eternal shame and tragedy that would be. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we ask that you would help us to take these things seriously, as we do. For those of us who know you, we just can only look to you with gratitude and say thank you. Thank you for your mercy in our lives. Thank you that though we fail, though there's still sin that we battle, we have the evidence of your work, of your grace because we want to battle it. We want to continually come to Christ for cleansing and forgiveness. We fully acknowledge our sin we do desire to love you through your word and to walk in a manner that's pleasing that we fail so often. We thank you for carrying and uh, keeping us when we know that it's in us to, to fail and to walk away. But you keep us. So we thank you for that. For those here who don't have that, who, don't, who, who are this hypocrite, who, who really don't have any hatred of sin in their hearts, You really have no love for Christ, no fear of you, no desire for your word. I pray for those that they would feel the convicting power and respond, that you would draw them to Christ, and that the reality of forgiveness in his life and shed blood and resurrection, the reality of reconciliation that's extended by you would become a reality to them, that it would be, as J.C. Ryle said, an experiential faith one where they truly do turn, truly do trust, and are willing to count everything lost to gain Christ. Would you work that grace in their hearts even today? And I pray this, our Lord, in your matchless name, who died and rose again for sinners. Amen.